He killed the first sage grouse he ever saw, five and a half pounds from completely out of sight. We couldn't see him. And he uh, cut him out of the air, blew a hole in him the size of a silver dollar. And you can't teach a bird to do that. They just got to want to do it. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Told podcast, brought to you in part by the fine folks at Marshall Radio Telemetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking systems available. For more information on Marshall Radio's fine products, including their awesome GPS system, head to marshallradio.com. And also in part by the Falconry Fund, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and protecting the various arts and practices of falconry and the cultural and environmental assets that make it possible. For more information on the Falconry Fund and its projects, and also to donate, just head to falconryfund.org. And this episode is the fourth episode in the New Mexico Falconers Association podcast series. It features Madison Haley, who has been a falconer for roughly 50 years or so. So he had a lot of very cool stories to share, as well as kind of some insight on the different changes in the landscape and hawking in the state of New Mexico, particularly when it comes to ducks, prairie chickens, and you know, things of that nature. So I'm going to go ahead and just turn things over to uh, the conversation with Madison so you can hear some of the, the great stories that he had to share with me and uh, hope you enjoy it. Here we go. You said you lived in Idaho previously, correct? Yes. Uh, briefly, uh, in the early 80s, I was trying to be a, uh, trying to go to college and become an art teacher and uh, uh, had, a, had a peregrine and uh, <clears throat> went one semester and then the lady I was with, we found out that we were going to be parents and so there I was <laughs> with no job and knee deep snow and <laughs> decided to flee back to, uh, to New Mexico but uh, I had a, uh, really enjoyed Idaho and a lot of game and uh, met some characters there. Uh, probably... Uh, could have maybe arranged to stay there more permanent, but uh, under the circumstances, and my, you know, I was 20, 22 years old, and gonna, gonna be a dad, and no job, no skills, so uh, I fled back to New Mexico after one semester of school. But uh, I hawked partridge and ducks, and uh, I met some other guys, and uh, saw some country I'd never seen before, and it was uh, quite an experience. Wow. Yeah, I was, uh, I can kind of relate. I was. Uh... 23 24 whenever i found out i was going to be a dad too so it's uh i had already kind of started the career i don't think it's any less scary though so i i can understand you know the uh <laughs> yep. yeah just the uh yeah it's definitely a life-changing thing but um so you, you were originally from new mexico and then went to idaho for school then? right right okay. i was born uh born in albuquerque 1949 and uh probably Started uh, getting interested in falconry in about 1962-1963, I believe. In fact, I'm certain. I saw a Walt Disney program, and they had this guy. Uh, it was just a short little five-minute feature, maybe ten minutes, uh, on one of his shows. And uh, had a guy in a buckskin shirt, and he had a little prairie falcon on a creance, and he flew it to a lure and picked it up, and I heard the bells jingling, and he put a hood on it, and it really affected me. I I go, I want to do that. I, I mean, I, the next day I had the encyclopedias looking up falconry, and uh, it, it just got in my brain. In fact, I think the next couple of nights I got my dad's flashlight and went out around the trees in our where we live. We lived on the outskirts of Albuquerque, uh, I took my dad's big, big powerful flashlight and uh, was searching the trees because I was convinced there was a falcon in the trees around our house. I mean, I, you know, I just I got to find one, you <laughs> yeah. know. So anyway, and I was probably in the seventh grade, junior high school, and uh, kind of, you know, any any chance I got to get a book. And at the time, the only thing that was available to us were the old English <laughs> falconry books, and uh, they're they're not much help, but. I I probably thumbed through it hundreds of times, looking at the pictures and reading them, and uh, that was kind of kind of the start for me. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. I, I everybody's got a different story. Everybody's got a different age, it seems. And um, yeah, I mean, it's 
it's it really is amazing you know just in the conversations that i've had with people over the past couple of years doing doing these just how different everybody's experiences are and even just doing one recently with um, a falconer from the uk you know learning just how different things are even from country to country is is amazing too so but uh yeah i mean so you you started off what i mean what did you think that you you wanted to do and how did that end up i don't know kind of i mean you said you wanted to initially go to school for for what again uh, I wanted to be an art teacher. Yeah, an art teacher. Okay. Fine arts and education. Gotcha. So I know we were talking a little bit ago also about, you know, kind of when you're on that path a little bit, you know, you kind of stumbling into that other situation with, with the Peregrine that kind of changed your life um, and, and kind of steered you in that direction. Uh, go into that just a little bit. Oh, okay. Um, I was probably... Uh, in that same time frame, I was probably 13, 14 years old. I'm, I'm going to say 14. Mm-hmm. And uh, a fellow I knew that lived a couple of miles away, a few years older than me, named Jim Wilmarth, ended up being my, my uh, best friend I ever had. Uh, I ran into him at a little shopping center out in the rural uh, area of Albuquerque, and he was taking his little brother uh, to get a haircut. And I saw him, and, hey, Jim. He goes, hey, Madison. And what do you, you know, this and that, a little chit-chat. And he says, uh, well, I got a peregrine. And I uh, really set me back on my heels because I only thought there were peregrines in England. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, that was my scope of knowledge at the time. And at any rate, about two hours later, I found myself riding my bicycle a couple of miles over to... uh, where he lived, with, still with his parents. Jim was about 18 or 19 at the time, and I was I was 14, maybe approaching 15 years old. And uh, I'd had a sparrowhawk and uh, kind of blundered around. But uh, I walked into the back porch, screened-in porch of their home, and here is this gorgeous, fully feathered, uh, eyes female anatom peregrine on a screen perch, just dog-tame, positively breathtaking gorgeous and I uh, I walked up within four or five feet of her and she just cocked her head and looked me over head to toe and I I just almost had an out-of-body experience I mean it just it just kind of I just knew that I was going to do that someday that I was going to own a peregrine Mm -hmm. that it, it can happen there's one right in front of me I know it can be done I've seen him in the books and I want one but you know, it was quite a while before I got one. <laughs> well, I mean, what what were you flying in in the interim? Then was it mainly just hawks? Uh, I I just fooled around, had some sparrow hawks. I got a hold of a uh, of a young red tail and had it two years. So nothing was uh, serious. No hawking. It's pretty much just having them on, just just having them, and feeding them and trying to take the best care I could of them. Uh, when I was 17 years old, uh, my senior year in high school, in November, during Thanksgiving break, I went and trapped a uh, Tercel Prairie. And uh, I, I, trained, I uh, manned the bird. I had no hood for it. Uh, I uh, manned him pretty well. <clears throat> had him on a little screen perch in a shed the back of our property. And uh, I'd come home from school every day and walk in, and he'd hop to my fist, and I'd carry him around. And uh, it never really got beyond, uh, I, think, I think I got to call him to the lure. And uh, one day I came home from school, and I usually would walk, walk, toward the, walk up to the door, and I would start tapping the walls of this little building, and I could hear him move in there. Uh, anyway, I didn't hear anything, and I opened the door, and he was hanging upside down backwards on the screen perch dead and it absolutely broke my heart i remember when i buried him i uh, later on i climbed up in a tree and hid and cried for a while it just de- absolutely devastated me and it all goes back to my just lack of experience uh and uh you know it, it just it was kind of bound to happen and uh you know Quite honestly, I didn't know any better. So uh, then it was a couple of years before I got another 
uh, trapped another prairie falcon. I took her a little bit further and uh, to the point of wading on and throwing some pigeons. And uh, another friend of mine, I think the same day, we both trapped our birds the same day and uh, uh, more or less trained them together. They didn't fly them together in a cast, but he'd go fly his and I'd wait till he got through, then I'd fly mine. And uh, never got to hawking. I never could break through. I never had a mentor to say, well, you should have done this, or here's the fork in the road you take to go do this. Uh, you know, my falconry at that time was pure trial and error, mostly error. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, nobody learns from getting everything right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Unfor- exactly. Unfortunately, yeah. it's yeah. price you pay. Yeah. But uh, so you didn't have an official sponsor when you started out. I mean, oh, you, it was way, it was, you know, back, back still. No uh, licensing. Do, yeah, before the, the, reg, the regs birds, and all that stuff. The birds weren't protected. If you wanted right. to go shoot a peregrine and nail it up on your barn door, you could. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, I believe it was 1970 uh, before uh, the state of New Mexico required you to have a license. And then, you know, of course, their protection. Uh, of the birds uh, was engaged and uh, it was 1971 that I went and got my first peregrine uh, a tundra peregrine I was 22 years old and actually it was uh, well it's 50 years ago and uh, uh, I did pretty well with that bird I flew her nine seasons without uh, telemetry I killed several hundred ducks with her Killed crows, pheasant, killed a couple of herons. Uh, what else? Uh, I can't remember. But anyway, I flew her nine seasons and uh, uh, really, uh, well, here's, here's a, you like stories, here's a story. The <laughs> first part of the year, the, the first part of the first year that I had her, I kind of stumbled around. I was too scared of losing her to get aggressive and let her fly and I finally got around another falconer that kind of steered me in another direction and got me thinking about some other things. And so finally, about the middle to the latter part of the season, she really started to fly. She learned how to thermal, and that changed everything because the bird was no longer just skimming around on the ground. She was going up 800, 900,000 feet, 1,500 feet, and I was throwing pigeons, and I could see the whole dynamic now i understood it Mm -hmm. and i was doing it and i went out west of albuquerque to this valley and there's a few ponds out there and uh went out late one morning and checked a pond there was six or eight green wing teal on it and uh had a typical uh dike half uh, uh kind of a crescent shape half moon shape uh dike and uh, got the bird out. She went up seven or 800 feet, went and flushed the teal. And uh, uh, teal are notorious for being bad flushers, but uh, by some miracle, they just went out the end of the pond, out over the hard dirt. She came in and drilled one, pitched up, and fluttered down on this duck, and I had killed my first head of game. And while I was running to her, uh, for someone, for some reason, I just felt compelled that I needed to jump up in the air and do a somersault. <laughs> and I landed on the small of my back on rock hard ground, didn't phase me, and I got up and uh, went the remaining 20, 30 yards to where the falcon, you know, had dispatched the duck and uh, had started to pluck, pluck it. And that was, the, uh, that was the first kill of my career, and that was 50 years ago. I think we all have uh, a little, I don't know, you, you want to call it a make-in mishap <laughs> story to some degree. I mean, how many times since then can you remember a, you've uh, tripped and fell or, you know, just just splatted <laughs> you uh, know, okay. trying, to, trying to get in? Okay, uh, another time uh, <laughs> at a stock tank, uh, I was going down this little embankment <laughs> There is this enormous puddle of cow manure. I mean, it was the consistency of oatmeal. And I slipped, uh, I skidded out in it, and uh, the, my whole side and my whole hawking bag 
was uh, coated in uh, liquid cow manure. Oh. So uh, that was real fun to drive home and uh, <laughs> uh, clean up afterwards. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, no, I'd be, uh, I probably would have just left it all there <laughs> and just bought new stuff the following day. I, <laughs> that, that's pretty disturbing. I don't think I could have, uh, gotten around that personally, but it's pretty unforgettable. <laughs> it sounds like it. Well, so when we were talking earlier in there also, you had mentioned that at one point in time, I think it was whenever you said you were in Idaho, you were actually one of only a, a couple of people at that time that even had a, uh, a peregrine at that point, right? Right, right. Um, when I got there, and there were some other guys around town there that were flying prairies, and uh, uh, another fellow, uh, he was real good with goshawks and always had a really hot goshawk. And let me see, yeah, it was mostly prairies, but I had a, I had my old uh, tundra falcon, and uh, she was on a permit, and the only other peregrine at the time in the state of Idaho, uh, Lester Boyd had a peregrine. So there were, believe it or not, only two legal peregrines in the state of Idaho back in the uh, early 80s when I was there. And now, uh, I, I'll probably mispronounce the name, but is it Malad, Idaho? Uh, yeah, Malad. 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 Malad, yeah. There's got to be eight or ten falconers alone living there that have several falcons in just one little community. Seems to be kind of a mecca for falconers. <laughs> and uh, anyway, the World Center uh, Birds of Praise there, the archives, uh, the, uh, the uh, Idaho is uh, now a falconer's destination. But at one time, there were two peregrines in the state don't, legally owned by falconers. It's unbelievable. It's kind of interesting how over the last several years in, in particular that the popularity of it's kind of had this resurgence. And, yeah, I mean, and, and with regs changing and, and hunting laws changing and new things being instituted, and, of course, with the, the constant loss of, of land, you know, the, the difference in, I don't know, just the, the quote-unquote, I guess, the hot spots are, are kind of, um, it's kind of interesting to see how all those dynamics are changing some, too. Yeah, but uh, what what made you move back to New Mexico then? Aside from just being broke and young and jobless, was there anything well, in particular that that made you come back? Well, or? it's my home base. Where my family was. I knew I could get him employment, and we knew we were going to have a child in the spring. And you know, it's just a way to regroup. And uh, I was I'm I was comfortable here, and uh, there was adequate hawking. Uh, the uh, whole east side of our state, uh, probably from Raton all the way down to Carlsbad, New Mexico, uh, had ponds. And uh, I lived in uh, Roswell, New Mexico. And Roswell is an agricultural area. And it had, uh, well, I counted 70 ponds that I could fly. And these were, stu uh, these were the, uh, they were man-made. They were, they'd push up four sides of dirt create a square tank and they had three phase elect electric pumps that filled them with water and um, the temperature there in the winter is mild so uh, there is a gazillion ducks there all winter and uh, so I you know I knew I had a fallback that my you know my falconry wasn't over because I was no I could no longer live in Idaho uh, I just made the adjustments I needed to make to uh, to survive cool on what did what did you end up doing whenever you got back here, like job wise? Then oh, job wise, uh, I started. Uh, I was lucky enough to uh, stumble into some great people that owned a real estate development and building company. They were home builders, and I uh, started off with them just as a just a carpenter laborer, more or less, and uh, they taught me a trade. Uh, I made a living, and uh, that was probably 45 years ago. And I'm I'm now a licensed. I've been a licensed general contractor, builder for 35 or 40 years. But uh, anyway, yeah, I was uh, uh, ran a nail gun and stood up uh, stood up trusses and nailed plywood and uh, was was a builder. But here here's here's a I guess you could call it a story. 
Uh, I moved back down to Roswell from Albuquerque, only three hours from Albuquerque, for the duck hawking. It was fabulous duck hawking. And, uh, uh, of course, with the daylight savings uh, ch time change, in the afternoons come late October, November, you, know, you get off work at 4.30, it's dark. You can't, I couldn't go home. So I remember one day I went and asked the owner of the company. He's the one that hired me. And uh, I said, uh, Don, I've, uh, I've moved down here uh, because I've, uh, I do the sport of falconry. I think you know that. And now with the time change, I, I can't get off work and get the falcon and go out and, and hunt before it gets uh, totally dark. And is there any way that I could keep my job but maybe get off uh, at 3 o'clock every day? And he, he paused his second and he said, yeah, uh, we can do that under one condition. And I kind of blinked and I kind of waited and he says, and you take me and my son out and uh, fly your falcon for us. And uh, I think a week later we did. And uh, for the next two years that I worked for him, uh, before I broke away and went off on my own, uh, I, got to, I got to pick up my tools and leave at 3 o'clock, dash across the small town, grab up the falcon. And uh, there were ponds anywhere from 10 minutes away to 30 minutes away. I had no problem. Uh, probably killed a duck every single evening of the winter. That's cool. Like I said, I, I'd wondered with that kind of schedule and, um, you know, just what, um, you know, with the adaptation of you having to find a career like that, exactly how that was going to, you know, affect your falconry. That's one question I like to ask a lot because, you know, everybody has different, um, you know, schedules, different some guys can mainly only do it on weekends. Some guys are fortunate enough to work from home, do their own thing and, you know, still just kind of do whatever they want when they want and still have a career. Others aren't so fortunate. So right. I kind of wondered if you were able to still make that work. <laughs> you know, with the... I, I did. Uh, 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 it was, it was quite a system. I mean, uh, I had the, I had the Hawking bag ready and, I had the, the bird blocked out in this little fence side yard, and I can remember pulling my truck into the driveway of this little house we rented. I rented a house for $80 a month, a two-bedroom house. I, I think gas at the time was 35 cents a gallon. Oh, man. Um, yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but uh, I could look through the slats in the fence when I rolled in the, the truck in the driveway, and I could see my bird pumping her wings. Uh, she, she knew I was home and knew the knew the routine, the timing, and animals can get on this timing schedule like to the to the minute, to the second. And uh, I'd I'd watch her, and I'm in, still in the truck, and I would shut the engine off, and she's still pumping. But when I would open the door of the truck, I could see her bait off uh, the block, uh, and she did it every single day. Wow! You know, just such a routine, and uh, just so much repetition. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's how you train animals. It's repetition, repetition. And she just got so used to it. Uh, but I would look for it every day of her paddling her wings. I'd turn off the truck, and when I would open the door, she'd bait. As far as you said you lived in Roswell, was this still, so this was still in, around Roswell then? Yes, it was, about? yes. Okay. Yes. What's the landscape changed? How's that, how's that changed? I mean, I, I, that's kind of one of the reasons why I was excited to do you know, a series of, of podcasts with, you know, falconers from a specific state in succession, because I kind of wanted to see what things were going to be like, or th what time, let me rephrase that. I kind of wanted to see how things had changed, you know, from, you know, if it had been as drastic as it's been in other states, you know, which is the loss of, of landscape, uh, hunting spots. And I mean, how much has that changed for you? Like all these years, it was a very, very drastic change. And it changed my whole changed the, the whole dynamic of my falconry. What they did, uh, well, t two things happened. First of all, I uh, discovered grouse hawking. And uh, the second thing that happened was the ponds in Roswell that I mentioned earlier were uh, all four-sided raised dike, um, and they were fed by uh, a pump. 
And they did away with those. They just bulldozed them away. And they, the purpose of those ponds was to push water down these small concrete irrigation ditches. It gave it, it would allow the water to travel out to irrigate their uh, alfalfa fields or whatever. And they also used the water for their livestock, of course. But they, uh, they bulldozed uh, probably 90 plus percent of all the ponds and put center pivot irrigation. So no more ponds. There's still some ponds there and there's still ducks there. But the ponds have overhead power lines. They have hog fence in front. They're posted. They're right on a road. The good ponds are history. They're gone. And uh, that really changed. While I lived in Roswell, um, I traveled uh, about 70 miles due east toward the Texas border. And I discovered a population of lesser prairie chickens. And that changed everything. Because, uh, well, ducks were phasing out, and I saw how challenging the prairie chickens were, and uh, I got uh, I got grouse fever. I think a lot of a lot of falconers understand that, and uh, <clears throat> that changed uh, my my point of view. It changed the type of birds I flew. Uh, when they when captive breeding uh, came about and was so successful. And uh, the the, uh, the peregrine was saved and reintroduced, and it was just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, a byproduct of it was uh, captive bred falcons for falconers. After a while, it loosened up, and then uh, private breeders could breed these birds and, and sell them to us. And uh, I got a uh, well. First of all, I got a I got a Peel's Tiersel. And he was really something. He killed the first prairie chicken in New Mexico ever killed by a trained falcon. And uh, I don't want to sound arrogant, but his first season down in Roswell, when I still was on the ducks and the ponds were still there, uh, some people are going to call me a liar, but he, he killed 122 ducks his first winter. He peels Tyrsel, 22 ounces. <laughs> then uh, I... Uh, would go to Oklahoma to fly the greater prairie chickens. And uh, that, was a, that was a hard deal because, uh, oh, it seems like on a grouse trip, there's a day that a wild prairie will come in and pull your bird out of the sky. There'll be a day that the wind is 60 miles an hour. Uh, there'll be a day that you don't find the grouse. So at the time I was still uh, an hourly carpenter and uh, I could steal off a week and in those five days, you know, I had to really, you know, accomplish something, find the birds. And uh, at the time I had, first time I went grouse hawking was with the uh, tundra peregrine. She was a, uh, a duck hawk and uh, the, uh, the prairie chickens made her look foolish. She, uh, I think she, I think she dinked one in two trips. Uh, when they, when they dip form thinking they're ducks and those grouse hit the afterburner, uh, it's over. <laughs> they don't have a chance. But then later on, years later, uh, the hybridization in breeding started. And uh, that, again, changed everything. And uh, those were the birds that are the perfect match for, uh, for prairie grouse. Cool. I mean, so have those numbers been even remotely sustainable, even like to current day, I mean, are there still is there still enough of those to to be able to successfully hunt, you know, long wings in your area? Or? Uh, the prairie chick, the lesser prairie chicken in New Mexico, uh, has been closed for gosh, I'm going to say 25 or more years. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's there. Uh, there's just little pockets of them around, and uh, there's other people that are more expertise on the exact cause of it, but. Uh, there, uh, there's just remnant populations, you know, there's somewhere over in this county's, you know, got a hundred and over here, there's, there's a few scattered around. So I switched, uh, and I started going to Nebraska where they have sharp-tailed grouse and the greater prairie chicken. And, uh, they're, they're plentiful up there. They're, uh, I have seen five in, in the good times, uh, when they really group up in November, December, January, uh, I've seen five and 600 grouse in one evening 
uh, swarming uh, the farmland, you know, and, you know, down the road here, this saw 150 come into a cornfield and I dashed down the road and turned back up to another field and 200 came in there and landed. So the, as New Mexico diminished, I transitioned and uh, I've been flying, well, this one particular ranch that I'm flying now, I've been there 23 years. But I didn't go hawking last year because of COVID. And there's, uh, there's, there's, three, there's three landowners there. Two of them are, are brothers and their wives and then uh, a separate couple. And two of those three couples uh, contracted COVID. So I felt it inappropriate to go up there and want to recreate and, uh, you know, when they're struggling and, <laughs> uh, and all. And uh, I was just a little too paranoid. So uh, last year uh, I skipped uh, any, any trip. And this, I'm going this year, and this will be my last year of, uh, of grouse hawking up. When I drive away, I, if I ever go back, it'll be to visit the people, maybe hunt deer or something. But uh, it's 800 miles to the to the ranch, and I've got very bad uh, ankles, knees, hips, elbows, and the, the drive uh, just wears me down. Something terrible. There's there's times that I, well, in fact, a couple years ago, I drove home from Nebraska, straight run, 800 miles, and I pulled in uh, my driveway at dawn. And I had to get my cell phone and call into the house and wake my wife up and have her come out and help me come in the house. I was so uh, stove up, so crippled. Uh, I've had knee surgery, ankle surgery. And uh, anyway, so uh, 50 years is enough. <laughs> so are you going to call it good then, like period, or just yeah, for... Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to... Uh, I uh, There's a big difference between... If, if you've if you've hawked grouse and been in that environment and experienced that kind of flight and that landscape and that uh, well up in Nebraska they call them sandhillers it's the sandhills of Nebraska if you've experienced that culture and uh, the people it's gonna it's really hard to come back to Albuquerque and box up some pigeons and get on the interstate in traffic and drive to the edge of town and throw a pigeon when you've uh, hawked grouse as many years as I have. Uh, it's time to step away. I want, other, I want to do other things in my life uh, with the time I've got left. And uh, again, 50 years is enough. Well, I mean, there's there's people that I'm, I'm sure that would agree. <laughs> there's people that I'm sure that, you know, they're just going to keep hobbling out there and, you know, get out there in, in canes, walkers, and wheelchairs if they have to, I'm sure. But, you know. Trust me, I have to, <laughs> I, the thought has crossed my mind. But, you know, if I could drive 30 minutes in hot grouse uh, or even ducks, I, I would continue. But, again, to uh, step down from what I did, the, the, the standard of falconry and caliber of falconry, uh, and reduce it to reaching in a box and getting a pigeon on the edge of town. No thanks. I'm done. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've talked to other people that have similar sentiments. You know, if it wasn't for, you know, if they couldn't fly certain species or certain, you know, certain game or whatever, they would just hang it up because everything else just doesn't really do it for them. You it's know? called addiction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I get it. You know, I mean, that, and and kudos to you for being able to, to realize that about yourself and, and know that, you know, I mean, because, you know, like I said, it's it's we say it all the time. If you if you don't have the will and you don't you know just have the, um, you know, if the, the addiction wanes, so to speak, and you can't fly those birds as often as they need to be flown and on whatever quarry that you want to fly, then it's better probably just not to do it. So I agree I wholeheartedly. Yeah. Wholeheartedly. Cool. Well, I mean, we're, so when did you get involved with, with the, uh, with the association here with, with, the uh, with the club, the state club? Um, um, they, it, it was kind of a real casual low key kind of thing. Oh, I don't know how many years ago. And, uh, we have a, a falconer here. I think he's about my, my generation, my age, Matt Mitchell, and one or two other guys kind of really ramrodded it, and uh, they'd make the calls to people or send out a mailing. We're gonna we're gonna gather at so and so's house on so and so date, and it was real low key and easy going, and that was kind of the start of it. And uh, in fact, I think Matt was uh, 
he was the principal guy for, for, gosh, the first six or eight or ten or ten years, and now it's grown. There's there's new faces, but it's still pretty much the same thing. Uh, gather up uh, uh, one Saturday a year, usually in the summer, a little picnic environment, and uh, you know, people bring some beers if they want, and uh, talk about laws or or this, and they have a raffle, and uh, it's a it's a low key. Uh, it's a nice, it's a nice thing. Cool. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. I, th- I think every state could benefit from it if it's, if it's done right and, and ran well and, you know, yes, you, uh, it's real important. Uh, I think to have a liaison with, with your game department, it shows them that you're organized, that you mean well. Uh, uh, and, uh, if someone new is coming in, uh, interested in falconry or someone that's new and is kind of stumbling around in falconry like we all did, well, there's your opportunity to uh, interact with more experienced falconers. You know, here's how your jesses should be. Here, here's here's how your perches should be. Here's, you, you can learn. Like I said earlier, uh, my falconry was entirely trial and error when I started. I had no one to learn from. And now, geez, these young, these these new generation falconers, heck, they're flying these great birds and doing great things. But falconry has changed so much. I mean, telemetry. Now you can go. Now you can go find the bird and bring it home. You don't. You don't lose them. You can develop. You can. You can develop a bird instead of having one bad day. The bird goes over the hill and it's over with. Now you can go get her. You can correct it. And plow through it, and end up with a you know a good a good steady falcon, and and all this other stuff. And you know when we started, you had to go trap your own bird, and you could only get this, and you could only get that. Well, uh, nowadays, you can pick up the phone, and you can call somebody and go, I want a white jer falcon. Okay, you got it. Send me some money. Okay, you've got a white jer falcon now, which was unheard of before, and you can. Uh, Go to one of these sites, and you can order hoods. You can order your telemetry. You can order quail to feed your bird. Perches. You can order a. Uh, you can get a bird dog. Uh, all in one day, you can get all of this stuff uh, headed your way. Whereas, with my generate when I started, you know, I made terrible hoods. Uh, <laughs> I uh, snipped uh, my my jesses out of apron split leather. Uh, I had you know I had lousy stuff because I didn't know any better. Yeah, well, I mean, and as far as the telemetry and stuff, I used to, obviously the birds still got to come back once you find it, but <laughs> there's always that. There's always that problem yes, too. Always but, that. <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's the, things have changed a lot, but the fundamentals still, in a lot of ways, as weird as it sounds, even over thousands of years, have stayed the same. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, but absolutely. Uh, your your uh, your rapport with the bird, your initial handling of a wild bird. How you introduce them to the quarry, uh, j- just you know, I could list fifty things that, uh, and it's and it's worldwide. You know, the Arabs, European, uh, it, it, it's all. I mean, th- th- there's some differences, but generally, it's it's all this. It's all the same thing. Uh, what we go through, you know, to get a a, a good flying hawk. Or falcon and and take care of it properly, no broken feathers and good manners. Uh, we all kind of do the same thing. Yeah, like I said, the fundamentals for sure, and it's it's weird too because you know even from species to species, just the 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 starting steps still are, are pretty much consistent. It's just that that's that's where the uh, the fun quirks begin though is is learning all the differences and and kind of how do you. You yes. Know, just handle the different species, and and of course every bird then within each species is different too. Yes. So. Yes. I've flown a lot of the uh, too, too many. I've flown a lot of these uh, Jer Peregrine tersels, and uh, no two are alike. You know the way they're wired, you know their personality, their demeanor, their temperament, uh, their uh, their metabolism, everything about them. Uh, there's a little variation. Whereas you know you over the years I've trapped a lot of passage prairie falcons too, and I've had several tundra peregrines well they all kind of fall in the same niche they they're, they're very very similar in how you handle them and the, and the end result that you get but uh, 
boy, some of these hybrids, you, <laughs> you sit there with it and you go, and I paid how much for this bird? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that, and that's why a lot of guys, I know, stick to passage birds and, yep. and, yep. uh, don't regret it a day a day of that decision because if right. it doesn't work uh, out you can always just turn it back loose and you're none you're none the worse yeah. but well let's let's go ahead and uh, go ahead and share um another one or two of your favorite stories real quick and then i think we'll be about at the time to call this good but i'm you you had a seemed like you had a lot of cool stories so well uh, you know I've, I've been a game hawker so you're out there on people's land and uh you know, uh, daily I I hawked uh, I hawk I hawk a hundred plus uh, days a year. <clears throat> but uh, down when I lived in Roswell, uh, and I had that little Peel's Tiersel that was such a dynamo. Uh, there was this one uh, farm, a ranch that I used to pull into, and I had to pull up right by the by the ranch house, and they had a large screened-in porch, and. Uh, I had to drive by it to go about another 50 yards, and then I could check uh, two ponds that were right there. And uh, this old gentleman, I remember his name, Mr. Graves. This old gentleman, uh, very often in the afternoons, it was always the same time of day that I came, he would be sitting there in, in this, I could barely make out his silhouette in, behind the screen in the screen porch. And I'd see a hand come up and he'd wave to me when I drove in and I'd stick my arm out and wave to him. And it happened quite often. Well, one day I pulled in, and he was uh, outside. He wasn't in the screen porch. And uh, he walked with, uh, he didn't have a walker. He used two canes, a cane in each hand. And so I, I pulled up and got out and said hello to him. And uh, I said, well, Mr. G you're, you're right in a good position. You can watch the, the falcon fly. Because from in the porch, he couldn't see it. He could see me pull in and pull out, but he couldn't see the flight. But now he could see the flight. So I uh, turned the bird, went and got ready and turned the bird loose. And uh, there was all kinds of ducks on this pond, widgeons and gadwalls and a whole bunch of divers. I think golden eyes and ring necks and a bunch of those little <laughs> crappy ducks. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, the bird, uh, the... Uh, he lined up on this, uh, I, don't, I can't remember if it was a golden eye or a ring neck, but some little tiny diver. And uh, it flew right out over the driveway and came right up to this old gentleman that was still standing there. And uh, I think the, the falcon uh, might have tapped him, but he, he did a kamikaze into the ground. And the, the peregrine... Uh, shot up and fluttered back down on him and had him right in front of this man, six feet from him. <laughs> and I knew it was a lousy flight that the bird, uh, you know, bailed out, the duck bailed. And, you know, uh, as compared to a good flight, had it been a widgeon or something, and it would have been an aerial kill. So anyway, I come trotting down off the dike, and I come across this little expanse there, and I come up to him, and I go uh, something to the effect of... Uh, well, he got it, but it wasn't wasn't really much of a of a of a contest. That that uh, that duck knew he was going to be uh, going to be killed. Uh, knew the falcon was going to close up on him, and uh, he he kind of gave it up. And uh, I was trying to explain to the man that it, it's not what we want. That the flight was poor, and the duck uh, bailed out. And uh, anyway, the old man says, "Yeah." He sure enough knew he was fixing to get an ass whooping put on him, didn't he? <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, that'll stay with me <laughs> till I die. Yeah, I mean, and that's like that's that's one of the other rewarding things that happens from time to time when you have people that ask to to join you in the field and seeing their reactions for the first time, and uh, you know some are you know a lot more. Uh, <laughs> some are a lot more uh i don't know how do you how do you put it um excitable than others yeah yeah <laughs> but absolutely. Uh, but no that's cool well go ahead and, and throw throw one more story oh gosh you uh gosh another one another one oh, well let, let me ask you this is there a bird is there a particular bird in your in your past that's that sticks out oh absolutely well talk talk a little bit about like one of the the, the kills or with or okay. one of the catches okay. with that bird. Uh, it was a uh, it was a Jew peregrine tersel. Uh, 
And uh, I got it from uh, Dave Jameson in, in Reno, Nevada. And uh, well, when he came when he uh, came in to me, was sent to me. Uh, some other guys had bought some birds, and uh, we all kicked in a little money to pay for gas and a rental car. And uh, so there's three or four Tirsal uh, Jeer Peregrines uh, brought in on this cage. And uh, I had to drive up to Denver uh, to get mine instead of go all the way to Reno. And there was a heat restriction on shipping, so we couldn't get the birds uh, flown to us. And so th that was the solution, was that these guys are going to drive and uh, they were going to drop off a bird here and drop off two birds in Colorado and then go on to where they lived. And anyway, I went there and uh, walked into this room, and here's here's three uh, three beautiful Jeer Peregrine hybrids on a cage there. And uh, I walked up, and I go, let me guess, the one in the middle's mine? And it was the smallest one, like not a runt, but here's these other two big barrel-chested birds, and here was this little one in the middle. And, the, you know, the band numbers had been issued and permits, so it's a done deal. And, I, and the guy says, yeah, that's, that's yours. And, oh, okay. Well, it turns out to be one of the best grouse hawks in history. Uh, <laughs> his name was Oscar, and quite a few guys have seen him fly. And uh, this bird would come out of the storm clouds and cut a prairie chicken stone dead out of the air an eighth of a mile out. Uh, and you can't teach him that. I, I can't take credit that I had some mysterious exotic training technique that made him do that. He just did it. He did it from day one. He killed the first sage grouse he ever saw, five and a half pounds from completely out of sight. We couldn't see him. And he uh, cut him out of the air, blew a hole in him the size of a silver dollar. And you can't teach a bird to do that. They just got to want to do it. And anyway, Oscar... Uh, Oscar was the bird of a lifetime. He killed uh, he killed prairie chickens and sharp tails for 20 seasons. He's at home now, retired. He's 23 years old, and uh, man, <laughs> it uh, it breaks my heart every day when I when he flies up to the bars to get his food, and I see those little wings of his flutter, and I go, man, you know. But uh, it's just not worth it to me to risk him hitting a fence or getting killed by a wild prairie just for him to kill a couple more grouse. So after 20 seasons and his last grouse he killed, I took him home and uh, uh, called, it, called it good. But uh, Oscar, uh, Oscar was, uh, he was good for, he's the kind of bird that you unhooded a big flock of grouse in the evening and he would go up right at the edge of sight. I don't know, that's 15 or 1800 feet. I don't know how high that is. And we'd get a flush, and he would put one down. Maybe it went in. We couldn't find it. And he would ring up again that high. And I would get a second flush. And at times, I've gotten a third. And again, when you get a bird like that, uh, it, you, you're, it's a gift. You're blessed. It's, it's, uh, it, it'll never happen again. I mean, I have one now. He's, I'm just starting him out. And I, have a, uh, an, I trapped an anatom last summer off a cliff and uh, she's just about molted out so I'll have a second year peregrine and I'll have a, a fresh uh, new uh, peregrine tersel to go to uh, Nebraska with in November but uh, Oscar uh, he he was he, he was the bird of a lifetime so that doesn't affect your decision at all knowing that you're getting ready to, to officially hang it up for good not to just go ahead and just pull him out of the mew real quick for, for one it's, last go around or it's crossed my mind. <laughs> it has crossed my mind, but he's such a butthead about being hooded. <laughs> and, uh, I've got the other two birds to handle. Uh, and, uh, the last time I was up there, the last, the last grouse flight up there, I kind of promised him that was it, you know, that done. Well, I mean, 20 years, you're right. That is a, that is a extremely rare. And the first time I ever saw a uh, prairie, a greater prairie chicken flush off was the first year I had the tundra peregrine. We went to Oklahoma, and there's a, a couple of counties up there near the near the Kansas border that have them. And when I uh, I saw these this little group of uh, prairie chickens flush off and fly off into that haze, 
you know, well, I knew right then that none of our birds were going to kill one of them. And, uh, but I, uh, it kind of threw down the gauntlet. I, I just decided right then and there that that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure, I hadn't killed a duck yet, but I, when I saw those, I'd seen some duck kill, some duck kills by falcons. But when I saw those things fly off, in fact, for the rest of that short trip, we were driving through these little communities. I kept looking out the car window going, where, where, how, how can I get a job here? Where, where can I live? I wanted to, I, I knew that's, and it took me four years to ever kill one. Man. You know, I, t- I had to wait that long. And then when, uh, then when the, uh, the, the jeer peregrine turtles came along again, they're, they're the perfect match for the prairie grouse. And, uh, I've killed quite a few with the jeer peregrine turtles. Well, that's, that's great. I'm glad that you've had an amazing, sounds like an amazing 20 years with the same bird. I, it, uh, there's not, I can't think of hardly anyone that can say it, that. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, uh, it was like every time, every time at, at dark, uh, I always flew the evening birds. Prairie chickens come in mornings. They come in in the evenings to the, to the crops. That's how I flew them. Uh, every time I unhooded that bird, I thought I was going to, that was going to be it. I was going to never see him again. But I always took him home at night. Man, that's, like I said, that's, I mean, even getting a few seasons out of a bird yes. is, is fortunate. And, you know, I have friends that have flown um, the same, you know, birds, or the goshawk or whatever species over seven or eight years and just recently lost, you know, those, those birds. And I, I can only imagine what... You know, I mean, the fact that you still have him and he's still hanging out, you know, it's still ornery. Wow. Still won't let me pick him up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, he's, he's earned it. It sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. He's bird of a lifetime. All right. Well, I think on that note, that's, that's probably the perfect uh, note to end on. But, um, you know, thank you so much for, for making the drive up and and doing this. And, uh, yeah. And is there anything, um, in passing or in in parting that you uh you know want to send out as a message to to all the the new generation or uh, uh new guys um you know if you're going to learn or improve you need to hang around somebody that's better than you are and uh you know that's that's what I did and I've been around people and uh I I see that well you know his gear his his stuff is better than mine, and his bird is tamer than mine, and his bird is handling. Uh, kind of set your sights on, uh, uh, you know, pick, pick out a mentor, and uh, uh, doesn't hurt to copy. Uh, that's how you learn. That's how I learned. Yeah. That's good advice. Good advice. Well, thank you again, and uh, hopefully we'll cross paths again sometime in the near future. And, you know, like I said, thanks again. You're most welcome. All right. Talk soon.